Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Angela Bianco, who's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai, maternal fetal medicine specialist, also the director of obstetrics and the medical director for labor and delivery at Mount Sinai. Angela, welcome to Healthful Woman. How you doing? Thank you for asking me, Nadie. I'm hanging in there. How about you? <laughs> I'm okay. This is a uh... Tough for everyone, but uh, as I told you before on the phone, I have tremendous respect and mercy on your soul for being in this position at this time. This is tough stuff. Well, thank you for saying that. We're all working collaboratively as a team to just try and get everybody through this as best we can and as safely as we're able to. We're all in it together. 100%. Just so our listeners understand, what exactly is the role? of director of labor and delivery, just in general, what does that mean? Director of labor and delivery is, it has lots of different functions. Primarily, my role involves making sure that we meet the standard of care in terms of how obstetrics is practiced at this institution. So that involves ensuring that we have up-to-date and evidence-based policies, protocols, and procedures for how to safely deliver moms and their babies. And these can be extremely esoteric or they can be very general policies and procedures. So that's a primary focus of my role. In addition to that, it also entails being involved with the quality assurance program here. So our QA that involves looking at cases where there's room for improvement and that can involve all sorts of things, equipment issues, staff performance, communication issues, system issues. So I'm very much intricately involved in that aspect. And then there's a large operational aspect that comes into play. So ensuring that all sorts of systems are in place, that all of the working parts that come together cohesively here on the labor floor are functioning. And that involves just in large, broad categories, nursing, medical, and other ancillary support staff. And so this can involve things like equipment issues, operationalizing workflow issues, things of that nature. So I would say that that's in broad strokes, a bird's eye view of of my role here. Right. In addition to all that, you're also a physician. I mean, you see patients and you teach and do research and you're involved in all your clinical activities as well. Yes. Wow. And so in order to accomplish this, I mean, obviously that's a massive undertaking and you have to collaborate with an entire leadership team in order to do this. Who else do you work with in order to get all this done? So there is a leadership team and we all work quite closely together and that involves myself, that involves our nurse manager, the assistant nurse managers, the director of nursing for women's health. It involves the chair of operations for our system, Mount Sinai Health System, as well as Mount Sinai Hospital. It involves the chair of the quality assurance and safety program. It involves the chair of the department overseeing all aspects of departmental work, as well as my own division team members within maternal fetal medicine and the entire obstetric faculty. So the the core leadership group then messages 
policies and procedures to the remaining members of the department. But we do work as a core leadership group with all the members that I just outlined. Right. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that in a hospital, you have one hospital, but different parts function so differently from one another. For example, if you looked at labor and delivery and what you know challenges are faced there and what operations are in place and what processes and procedures, they're going to be so different from maybe how the emergency room is run or how pediatrics is run or radiology, just because it's it's a totally different environment and they can't necessarily be run by the same people. And so you have to have a leadership team almost in every single area of the hospital to figure out your own workflows and your own safety, uh, as opposed to just having one big one for the whole hospital. Well, that's a really great point. And what makes us unique as a service is we actually, if you think about it, are sort of a hospital inside of a hospital because we have our own triage, which is similar to an emergency department area. Then we have patients that are admitted. So we have long-term admissions that could be antepartum or postpartum admissions. Then we have patients that are admitted who are laboring. Then we have an entire OR unit. So we're operating three full-time ORs. And then also, in addition to having all of our patients, we frequently have patients, partners, and support individuals present. So it's it's a lot of moving parts, and it really is a full hospital inside of a hospital because we're emulating the ED and the OR area and the inpatient wards and even, I would say, the ambulatory surgery wards in some sense. So it, it is sort of complex. Yeah, and also one of the difficulties in terms of obstetrics and gynecology is Unlike a lot of other departments or areas in the hospital, really everybody wants labor and delivery separate, meaning the other staff in the hospital don't want to rotate onto labor and delivery because it's an entirely different set of circumstances and they would seem pretty lost over there and vice versa. They don't want the pregnant patients and they're part of the hospital unless absolutely necessary because pregnancy is something we deal with all the time, but they don't. And so it's one of these situations where you can't even have staff moving back and forth or have patients going back and forth, you know, from our unit to one of theirs and vice versa. It's really something that everybody prefers that the labor and delivery unit is its own separate area. Correct. So it is a highly specialized area. And so there really is not much room for cross coverage. The nurses are very particular skills about reading things like fetal heart rate tracings and being able to recognize the different stages of labor and perhaps when something has gone awry during labor. And then they need to know how to take care of a patient in the immediate postpartum period. And to your point, we even have differences within our own department. So we have nurses that completely function on the labor floor exclusively. And then we have a separate nursing staff that just cares for postpartum women. And then we have, in some instances, a separate staff that only functions in the confines of the operating room here. So it is highly specialized in that sense. It would be difficult to bring people in from other areas of the hospital to function in a really high-level standard, not having any experience or training or education with regard to fetal health and well-being in labor. So that would be really difficult to do. Right. And I think it also makes 
management, like the position you're in as a, as a director or anyone in a leadership position, it makes it difficult because it's hard to use, let's say, protocols or other paradigms that have worked successfully in other units of the hospital because we are so unique. So essentially, you have to look to other hospitals and how they run labor and delivery or make it for yourself. And it's such an amazing challenge. And I've always had such awe and fear of the position. And and when you took this position, I mean, and it was, I'm sure, daunting enough. Could you ever imagine it would have turned into something like this with Corona? I mean, this is like this is like labor and delivery on steroids. <laughs> and then some. Honestly, never in my wildest dreams did, did I think that as a human being, I would ever live through anything like this. Aside from my role as medical director, just as a human, as a person, as a citizen, as a mother, as a wife, I never imagined for the life of me that I would be living through anything that is akin to this, never. And then the impact that this pandemic has had on the hospital, on our unit specifically, is astronomical, astronomical. And it's really in some ways incomprehensible. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to explain or articulate it to someone who didn't really live it in terms of the medical aspects, because the scenarios and the problems and the complexities that arise from trying to manage these patients and keep people safe are so innumerable. And when you think that you've developed a workflow or a pathway, something else becomes obvious and you need to rethink your thinking all over again. I feel like I'm like in this perpetual jigsaw puzzle And I think that I'm getting close to solving it. And then everything goes out the window and we have to start from scratch again. Right. I mean, I remember when when Hurricane Sandy hit a few years ago and it was also, you know, like an explosion on labor and delivery because all these units shut down. But that was really just operational. How do you deal with more people coming in, more doctors coming in, getting them privileges? But here, in addition to that, I mean, we have medical issues that are evolving, you know, for how long are people contagious? How contagious are they? Are there tests available for that? What do you do about the staff? Do we have enough gear? What do you do when you don't have enough gear? How do you clean an operating room? How do you move people from one place to another? How do you get their, you know, their partners here who they may be exposed? And each one of those, in addition to being its own challenge and how to work through that, changes every other day because our information changes. So like you said, it's it's you must be meeting continuously to try to get on top of this? I basically am doing this almost, I would say, for about 18 hours a day, if not longer on some days, because every time you think that you have figured something out, something else emerges. On top of that, all the guidance from our regulatory bodies, the Centers for Disease Control, the American College of OBGYN, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, in addition to our own governmental regulations, mandates being put forth by the governor's office. Everything is changing. I wouldn't even say on a daily basis. I would say more often than daily. So we're trying to do all of this in the context of this ever-changing landscape. And so not only do you have to keep on top of all of the regulations that change on a minute-to-minute daily basis, 
but also try and then recalibrate your own systems and your own operations to be in compliance with that, but then also try and tackle all of the dilemmas that come with trying to manage this virus and contain it. The thing that makes us unique, so obviously everybody is aware of social distancing and self-quarantining and the importance of that, which cannot be underestimated. And in that regard, the hospital where we both work, as well as every other hospital in this area, has really shut down all non-essential procedures. So anything that's elective or non-essential, and for that matter, even somewhat urgent procedures are going to need to be done elsewhere so that we could accommodate all of the really sick patients with COVID-19. But what makes us unique, to get back to my starting sentence, is we as obstetricians can't really shut anything down because moms need to have their babies regardless of coronavirus. So nothing that we do is elective or non-essential. And this is separate from the gynecological care that many of us I just do OB now, but many of our colleagues can really focus on OB and not perform gynecologic care at this moment in time because of the implications of COVID-19. But it's just really difficult that we can't turn women away and we don't want to turn anyone away. We need to take care of them safely, but it's difficult to not be able to really shut anything down from an obstetric standpoint to really focus on COVID cases like every other part of the hospital is able to do. Right. I think that's such a critical point. And I know that even before this, when people would talk about safety in hospitals and they would always look to the airline industry and say, you know, airlines have these policies and procedures and checklists and they're really safe and the likelihood of something going wrong is so low and they have all this and why can't we get that in medicine? And in some aspects of medicine, you can implement that. But, you know, something like, you know, labor and delivery, you don't have that option because if a plane has a problem with their checklist, they don't take off. They just wait until it's fixed. But you can't just tell a woman, don't be in labor until we figure this out. It's happening, whether you like it or not. So it's almost like if the airplane industry tried to do what they do with every plane leaving the gate at exactly the time they were scheduled, no matter what. And that would be a disaster, obviously. And so we're always in that perpetual motion of obstetrics and labor and delivery and postpartum and complications. And you have to just figure out a way to work in that context, that things are moving, whether you like it or not, and to try to keep everyone as safe as possible. And one of the other things you mentioned and how difficult it is to make these policies and make these procedures, I was actually going to ask you, it almost seems like it's equally difficult to just communicate them. Because every time you, you make a decision with the team, there's so many obstetricians who have to find out and nurses and they have to understand and communicate with one another. And that's its own difficulty on a big labor floor. Right. And that's why it's so important, especially during these times of crises, that we have options on how to communicate either through large WhatsApp options or email distribution change. But we really need to be able to message out to providers in all the different areas what the latest updates are and they can change. And then it's also from an operational perspective difficult because then you message something out and I get 20 texts, phone calls, or emails about the latest update. And then, you know, the following day it might change. So it's difficult because even though we're trying to 
practice in a safe environment and maintain social distancing. We're working within the same confines. We have the same facility and we still have to service the same population of patients. So we're doing our best. We have, we're putting our best efforts forth in trying to cohort patients based on whether or not they have, they're known to be infected or unknown or if they're negative. And this creates a lot of operational hiccups because we're trying to cohort people based on their status, but that also depends on our resources. So do we have rooms? Do we, do we have enough rooms to cohort people that are positive so they're in the same area versus negative? So there's a tremendous amount of downstream effect when we're trying to do this. And another thing that we've been working on in the last few days is in an effort to keep not only patients and their newborns partners safe, but also our staff. We need to maintain a staff that's healthy so that we can keep taking care of our patients. And so towards that effort, we are going to start testing patients that have scheduled procedures. So scheduled cesareans or scheduled inductions of labor probably 24 hours before they're scheduled so that we have some anticipatory guidance about whether or not they're infected and how that might affect how we function in the operating room, for instance. So we want to minimize the risk of anybody that is a healthcare worker or a newborn or a partner becoming infected while they are being cared for. You know, that's so critical. I mean, first of all, you're talking about communication. I mean, the communication, at least in my opinion, has been outstanding. I mean, there's there's every morning there's a conference call where the leadership is on, you know, Dr. Broadman, who's the, you know, the chairman of the department is on. There's emails that go out multiple times a day and each email has attachments to it. And you can read and, you know, documents and policies, you know, on the labor floor, there's meetings many times a day with the whole team to go over policies. There's a whiteboard that's up, you know, for changes in policies. There's a lot of information that's going. But I think the other point you made is so important for people to realize that there are several goals we're trying to accomplish on labor and delivery. Obviously, we're trying to, you know, what we're always trying to do is have the delivery be safe for the mother and for the baby. That's just, you know, there is a delivery happening and that itself is a challenge that we've been working through every single day forever on this. But on top of that, with corona, we're trying to figure out a way to do it where the mom has the lowest chance of getting herself exposed, where the baby has the lowest chance of getting exposed, with her partner has the lowest chance of getting exposed, and then also for the staff. And it's not just because, well, in general, we don't want to infect anyone on the staff. But if, let's say, the labor nurses start getting infected Number one, some of them themselves may have health issues and it could be an actual medical problem for them to get infected. But number two, if if a labor nurse has to go out on quarantine for a week or two, like we said before, there aren't people who can fill in. You can't just pull a nurse from pediatrics to cover the labor floor. They can't do it. And so if we start having staff go down with coronavirus, and again, even if they themselves do well medically, which would be not guaranteed, but even if they did, Having half of your work staff on the labor floor not able to come to work is a real dangerous situation for patients, whether it's doctors or nurses or, you know, other people who work on the labor floor. And that's something that has to take significant consideration into all these policies and procedures. And it's and it's it's really important for the overall safety. 
Right. I mean, that is so important. If we are going to try and maintain a healthy workforce, we have to be really cognizant of the measures that we're putting into place. Because like you said, the last thing we want to do is decimate our workforce, doctors, nurses, OR scrub techs, and then not be able to have enough resources to provide safe care. So it's really vital that we try and do our best. And in that regard, you know, we've implemented measures here where everyone is universally using masks to protect those around them from just in case one of us are unknowingly an asymptomatic shredder of this virus. We're all wearing masks to protect everyone around us. We're all using uh, personal protective equipment that includes the masks, but in addition to that, gowns and eye goggles when we're coming in contact with a patient that's known to be positive or if we have an unknown status. And we just recently, within the last week, implemented universal screening for anyone that's being admitted to the labor floor. So anyone that comes onto the labor floor, a patient will be tested. And as I stated, this is going to change a little bit where if we have prior knowledge that something's scheduled, they'll be tested the day before, and that'll be the patient and the partner. And another change that's coming up shortly is for those that are not scheduled, we're already testing them, the moms, but now we'll be testing the mom's partner if they're here during the birth process also. And this is in an effort to keep everybody safe and it helps inform the newborn care because if you were an asymptomatic shatter, either you or your partner, you didn't know that you were positive and now you have a newborn that you're going to go home and care for, it's really in your best interest to know what your status is so that you are much more fastidious and cognizant of hand hygiene and that you wear a mask when you're interacting with the baby and that you also either call upon somebody that can help who's not infected or if you don't have that resource, again, use your hand hygiene, but also follow CDC guidance about breastfeeding. So in women that are positive, they really should pump the breast milk instead of putting the baby directly on the breast. So far, there's no evidence that the virus has been isolated in breast milk, and the breast milk likely has immunoglobulins that can protect a baby, so antibodies that could help fight infection if it were present. So there is probably real benefit in giving a baby breast milk, but that should probably be done after the breast milk is pumped and put into a bottle, and the baby's either fed by an uninfected friend or relative or by a mom wearing a mask and gloves. And these testing algorithms presumably will get a lot easier logistically once that time from testing to result gets shortened. I mean, currently it's somewhere between four and 12 hours. And so that is why, you know, you have to test maybe before because not everyone's there early enough. But presumably over time, if that test window from getting the test and getting the result gets shortened, it'd be easier to test people and get the results right away and then figure it out early rather than having to wait till the, you know, midway in the day to know whether they're positive or negative. Right. And there are several companies that have developed testing that's really point of care testing that can be done right, you know, on the patient's arrival and results can be obtained within 15 to 30 minutes. But that, you know, that's something that's not 
available for wide distribution at this point in time. So today, March 30th, 2020, it could change by next week. But this is something that, you know, all hands are on deck trying to make this happen as quickly as possible. And we are hoping to have that sort of testing available in the very near future. They also foresee that at some point in the near future, we'll also be doing antibody testing, which will help to see if somebody's already had the virus and is immune. And that I think would be particularly helpful for not only patients and all people, but particularly helpful for healthcare workers, because that could potentially inform how we staff people. Even during surges and pandemics, if we know that a certain group of people are immune, they would be the people to have on the front lines. So I think that that is also going to be something that's going to change the way we we function in the near future. I wanted to talk a little bit about the visitor policy at Mount Sinai, because I know that's got a lot of attention, both within the department and in the hospital and in the press. And again, obviously, this is all trying to balance the idea of, you know, in labor and delivery, obviously, you know, just from an experience perspective, it's ideal to have someone have a partner with them, have someone with them. Also from just a pure obstetrical labor management, it's usually better to have a support person with you and balancing that versus the risk again to them, to the babies and to the staff. And can you just, you know, go over how this evolved over time and what were the thought processes that that led to each of the various decisions over the past week or two? We enacted a no visitor policy last week and then that had to be reversed over the weekend because of a mandate put forth through executive order by the governor. The reason why the decision was made to enact that no visitation policy was really to protect everybody that was coming onto this labor floor. And unfortunately, at that point in time, and even at this specific point in time, we didn't have universal testing in place and we didn't have partner testing in place. And I don't think that even in the presence of partner testing that we're going to completely control how things play out with this virus. But without knowing the status of a partner, everybody is considered potentially an asymptomatic shatter. And like I said earlier, we really have sort of close quarters here. So everybody is operating in very close proximity to each other. You know, we're at risk of spreading this either from an asymptomatic healthcare worker to a partner who can then infect their newborn or the reverse, a partner that's asymptomatic to a healthcare worker. Of course, the patient and the healthcare worker are absolutely essential. The patient is having a baby. The healthcare worker needs to help achieve that. In some ways, a support person from a psychosocial perspective is essential. But unfortunately, during pandemic crises, those sort of needs are outweighed by medical needs. And we found, in addition to trying to protect everybody, that the screening processes that we use when we ask people, if you have a fever, we check people's temperature, if they have known exposure, if they have upper respiratory tract infections, we find that people either unknowingly or knowingly are not always accurately representing the true scenario. So we had several partners who 
would scream no to questions, but then were in the rooms coughing and sneezing, and then later found to be infected and posed a risk for the patient, the newborn, the healthcare workers. And it just becomes very difficult when you need to function in small spaces and you have no control over somebody's status. And so this also comes into play when after delivery, a patient will go up to the postpartum floors and we don't have a new building. So most of the rooms are double occupancy. So now we're potentially having four adults. So the two patients, the two patients' partners, and then two newborns. So six humans in a room that's not very big. So this is certainly not consistent with CDC. And and we know the strategy for mitigating viral spread and pandemic spread is social distancing and quarantine. And we just couldn't achieve that in, in the space that we have. So our preference until we had the ability to test everybody was not to have partners present. And that really was a very difficult decision to make. And, you know, my heart was breaking for the women that were here without their significant other. And it's incredibly difficult. We tried to mitigate that by having video capabilities. And we ordered iPads and had iPads in the rooms with 24-hour Zoom capability. But then we were, we had the governor's mandate imposed upon us. And so we needed to reverse that decision. And now in trying to achieve a healthy space for our patients to deliver, and we're trying to test patients and partners. But it's not that simple because things can change based on people's COVID status. So that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, and listen, it's a long problem. It's a really complicated thing. And I think that a few things, you know, some takeaways, you know, number one, at least as of today, uh, the current policy is that women can have one person with them in labor, whether it's, you know, their significant other, whether it's a doula, whether whoever, it's one person who has to be well. At some point, that'll be testing, you know, tested well, as opposed to now it's just with symptoms. And currently they're there with them. There's no changing who that person is and they stay in the room and then they stay through delivery in a couple hours and then they go home. But I think that there's really two important points to that. Number one is that, you know, it's not just the healthcare workers and the healthcare system who has to try to keep everyone safe. It's really a communal effort. And people have to realize that they have to take responsibility for the community as well. So if you're, you know, someone's partner and going to accompany them in labor and you're not feeling well or you're not well, it's really not a good idea to keep that to yourself. That's something you have to step up and say, you know what, I'm not the right person to do this because I could potentially infect this baby or the nurse or the doctor or the patient who's walking by me in the lobby or whatever it is. And it's important to you know, just stay home at that point and maybe you shouldn't be that support person, even if you really want to be and we're hoping to be. And I think that that's one really important point. And I was on the labor floor yesterday and through all this, you know, we're wearing our masks and our helmets and our shields and our gowns and our gowns over our gowns and our gloves and our gloves. And we're about to walk in the operating room and some guy just like walked by in like clothes and a hat. And I was like, what What are you doing here? He's like wandered into the wrong place. And it's like the whole thing falls apart when, you know, one person doesn't pay attention to what they're supposed to be doing. 
And so I think that's one part that people have to really understand that everyone plays a role in trying to keep everyone else safe. And I think the second area is that these decisions are are made by people who take care of women and them having their babies every single day for their whole lives. And it's made by people who care very much about them and about their health and about their experience. And this isn't just some bureaucratic decision that comes down from on high. This is made after a lot of grappling with what is the best thing to do. And whether these decisions you know, ultimately are right or wrong or the best, no one knows, but everyone's just trying to do their best under a really difficult set of circumstances to get women and their babies and their families through this in the healthiest and safest way possible. And to just you know, realize that this is a group of people who are tirelessly devoted to women and keeping them well. Right. And what I want to add before I go to another COVID meeting, but I'd like to add two points. One thing that people, and, and I wouldn't expect them to really even know to think about this, but when we have a partner here with a patient, that partner needs to also be in personal protective equipment because we care about everyone and we need to protect them. Like I said, I don't know that I'm not an asymptomatic shutter. But when we have to distribute personal protective equipment to every single partner that comes in here, you're taking away personal protective equipment from providers that are working on the front line. And I'm not just talking about OB. I'm talking about people that are taking care of patients that are in intensive care units. Some of them are in really very, very critical condition. And eventually... It's very possible that we will run out of PPE. And then once we start to have more and more healthcare workers infected and decimate the workforce, it really becomes a safety issue. So the PPE usage is something that is not unimportant. And the other thing that I'd like to point out is when that mandate came forth, the CDC recommendation is that if you are a patient and you're COVID positive, you shouldn't have any visitors. And that sort of makes sense because, you know, A, why would you want to subject somebody to the risk of infection by being with you? And then B, anybody who is close enough to be a visitor or a support person is by virtue of the fact that you're close to you, potentially infected as well. So, these are the CDC recommendations. The mandate from the governor doesn't qualify that at all, just as a support person. So if your support person is positive, if you follow or any person that you're close enough to want to support you, they're all either potentially infected or positive if tested likely. Unless somebody has someone fly in from a remote area or drive in from a remote area that they've not seen for a while, which I guess is certainly a possibility. See, when you don't think about the medical ramifications and you issue an executive order that's not founded in operational and safety and medical procedures and policies, it creates a real conundrum. Well, Angela, I'm going to let you go on to your, <laughs> one of your several calls and meetings I'm sure you have to do. I'm so thankful that you came on and took the time to speak to me and our listeners. And also, obviously, there really is a lot of fear and concern that everyone has regarding these situations. And that's both amongst patients, amongst healthcare workers. 
But I think there's also a lot of inspiration to take away from this, that when it really gets difficult and messy, the people who are charged with this and being in charge of this really step up. And you have so many people who are stepping up and working, like you said, extra hours and staying up at night and trying to figure this out and working together and coming together. And there's really something to be very proud of that even though our healthcare system obviously does have flaws and does have holes and there's always ways we can improve, the people who work in it really do care and really will do everything that they can to keep women and their babies safe through all of this. And I personally appreciate it very much. And I know that our patients appreciate it very much. And even though you may never sleep, when you do sleep, you should sleep well that uh, that you're doing a great job. Well, thank you for saying that. But I would completely echo that sentiment. I mean, if there's one silver lining that comes from this, it's my day-to-day observation of how really beautiful it is to see people come together and work towards a common goal. And even under the most adverse circumstances, to see people's spirit shine forth is really, it is inspirational. People that I work with on a daily basis and that you work with on a daily basis are literally willing to, to some extent, risk their lives to keep our patients safe and healthy. And I don't think that anyone is ever going to be willing to compromise that. But it is really nice to see everybody working together. Wonderful. Angela, be well. You, your entire family, stay safe, stay healthy. And I'll probably see you about every day for the next few months. (laughs) Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.